Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Hosanna, Lord. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm, my name's Tyler. I am just one of the guys on the teaching team. And wanted to start this morning uh, with just a simple, your work matters. Um, and, and trying to communicate, not that you have to do something that matters, but just a simple, your work matters. I, I hope you hear that from time to time. I hope you'd hear that uh, here um, from, the, from the church. Uh, the Bible thinks your work matters. God thinks your work matters matters, what you do with, with your time. It's meaningful. It's important. Um, and, and to clarify, too, for those of us in the room in different stages, uh, if you are a stay-at-home parent, your work matters. Um, if you've had a career and maybe you're in a stage now where, where you're retired and you have a little bit of, of opportunity with that time to invest in grandkids or take on a minute or whatever you do with that, that work matters. Your work is important, meaningful. I say all that as we transition to kind of the third little idea in what has been a subsection of Ephesians as we continue to journey through a worthy walk and we find ourselves this morning in kind of this third dynamic pair. So a couple weeks ago was husbands and wives and then last week was uh, parents and children. And then this uh, section having to do with workers and those that they work for. So if you have your Bibles um, nearby or, or, or your phones or whatever you do and want to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we're kind of finishing this stream of thought that we started a while back. This will be verses 5 through 9. And, and as the guys come forward, I actually told them to grab a, a few more Bibles this morning. This might be a good one if you never grab one of these. I'm actually going to point to something that's in this particular Bible that we hand out. So if you want one of the hard copies this morning, might be a little bit helpful. Um, we're still explain everything as we go, but, but just a, a little kind of unique thing that's for us this morning. Um, but here we are, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through nine. And I'm going to read, and, and the verses here will also be on screen. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. 
So as I said before, there's been uh, three pairs of people in a row, and this is the last one. But I want you to do something with me. If you grabbed one of these, and I'll walk us through um, the very first word of our, of our section here, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, bond servants. And then this is the ESV um, that we have a bunch of in the back of North Shore. And there's a, a different type of footnote in this Bible. There's just a number one. And at the bottom, it says, for the contextual rendering of the Greek word doulos, see preface. Also verse 6, likewise for bond servant in verse 8. I'm a pastor's kid, been around a lot of Bibles. I'd never seen a footnote like this before. Uh, this is new to me, that it refers you to the preface. And so we've got this word in the Bible that says bond servants and then this footnote and then the preface. And so we're gonna spend some time for a second on this word doulos, okay? We, we have to do that. It's really, really important. And so I'll sum up, if you, if you grabbed one of these, it's like page five or six or something. But what they're talking about is it refers you back to the preface and then the committee of people that translated the ESV have some thoughts at the beginning and, and there's a specific paragraph on this word that's three times in our paragraph, doulos. There's a whole section in the preface on just this word. And what they write is on the difficulty of translating the word doulos. And they said it does have a, few, a little bit of a range in use. It's, it's all in the kind of category of submission, of a servant. And so in English, the word can get put as either servant or here, bond servant or slave. And so in this section, and we talked about this as a teaching team, what do, you know, what do we kind of do with this word and, and where it sits in, in the, the Bibles that we have here? Um, and we spent some time looking at, at what the ESV says and the difficulty in translating the word doulos as it is most correctly, literally intended as slave is just simply difficult in the 21st century North American context. That's what it says in the preface, that there's a difficulty in understanding this word correctly because of what happens when you say the word slave in this country. Now, I can, I can completely respect that approach. I think it's, uh, it's well thought out. It's intentional. Um, there are specific things that they are trying to accomplish. But I would like to submit this morning um, that the... the the intended use of the word here as slave is a better use for several reasons. And so this is a little bit of a different style of how I kind of get into a sermon. So if this is your thing and you're like, oh boy, we're going to learn about a word. Cheers to you. Here we go. If this is not your thing, don't worry. It's not that long. But it's really, really, really important to understand this passage and the intent of the author who wrote this book. Ephesians makes more sense if we do this for just a few minutes. So a few reasons why I think doulos being translated as slave is going to be useful for us, maybe a little bit better. And here's, here's the first one. One reason is just simply most translations have actually brought it across that way. So this is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 in the seven most commonly read translations that I'm familiar with right now. 
um, five of them bring it across as slave. New Living Translation, NASB, NIV, NRSV, and then the Holman. And so you can see there is, there is just this difficulty in this word, um, how to bring it across. So I, I don't think bond servant, as we get into this, is the best word, but that's not really the point. Here's the point. You guys can blank that. The point is that this word is crucial to understanding both this idea here and the attitude of the guy writing this letter. Because all three sections that we've covered now over the last three weeks, all three pairs of relationships relate to all people. So we go back a couple weeks ago, you are either married or have been around a lot of married people and have probably given some thought to marriage. And then last week, you are a child of somebody and you are either also a parent or you have parents or have people who have been parents to you. And so it's not like we turn this corner and we get to verse five and it says something servants and you go, well, I'm not that, I don't have to listen anymore. That's not what's going on in this paragraph here. This actually is the single most applicable part of this entire train of thought that started back at the end of chapter five with husbands and wives, runs us all the way through here. This is for everybody, and it's super important. So I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before. If you've been around a Bible, you've probably heard this before. But an ancient Near Eastern slave, so Middle East, Israel, Rome, and a long time ago, an ancient Near East slave is radically different than the shape that it took in um, the early formation of America. And that's why the ESV preface said what it said, is it's such a different world that it's kind of hard to track, but I hope we can do it this morning. A slave in the Roman Empire was an economic position, having nothing to do with race. Maybe in the exception, if you were a country that lost a war to Rome, a lot of your people would enter the Roman Empire as slaves. But even then, the overwhelming majority of the position of a slave was temporary. It was seven years being the most common duration. In the Roman Empire that Paul wrote this letter, you could sell yourself to become a slave. You could sell your children to become a slave. You could buy a slave. You could free a slave and adopt them. Your slaves could own slaves. And the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says that uh, in this time in the large cities like Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, where, where we are here, um, at any given point, around one-third of the people would have been slaves, and another one-third would have been slaves at another point. It was an overwhelming foundational component of just the economic system of Rome. It was one of the ways that they did business. Now, this is, this is a really tricky experience to try to describe, and it's especially tricky to try to describe in the first third of a sermon. 
But, but the two main concepts to understand is that this was uh, common, normal, and yet it still had to do with ownership. So this was such a normal part of the Roman Empire that there were, in this context, there were no people trying to organize a abolition movement as what took place in America when people read their Bibles and said, these, these things are incompatible. And yet, it, it might not have been better. We still probably prefer the uh, system that you and I are used to with, with contracts and severance pay and, and things like that. But uh, though a, a slave was almost an everyday experience, they were not truly a free person. In the sense that if their master was good, what came to them was generally good. And if their master was cruel, what they could expect was uh, a sense of cruelty. So if that helps set this up, it is different but it's really important for us to understand what Paul is going to try to make sense of in these next few verses. By writing to slaves, by writing to his church, by writing this letter to the people uh, of God who worshiped Jesus Christ in Ephesus, and they all read this together, and he says, slaves behave this way, masters behave this way, Paul's Paul's not writing to just a small subsection of people. This is still for everyone. And by considering our place as a worker or as a human under the authority, under the earthly authority of another, we also today can consider everyone in this passage. But that word takes on an even more uh, amount of significance. 40, um, yeah, 40 times in the New Testament, doulos is applied, is used to describe the relationship between the Christian and God. So what's super significant about this word is the way that the Christians adopted it and they used it to describe themselves. The guy's writing the New Testament. Forty times it's used to describe the relationship between the Christian and God, doulos. And another 30 times, doulos is used to help teach truths about the Christian life. Um, I have another picture by way of example for this. It's in the intro to half of your New Testament. Galatians, Paul, a slave of Christ. Titus, slaves of Christ Jesus. Second Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Book of Revelation, the revelation that Jesus Christ gave to show his slaves. Jude, a slave of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus Christ, a slave of God. They adopted this idea on themselves. 
This thing that was in their own world, this experience of a master and a a, a person under them, this idea, this concept of slave, they took it. They said, this is mine. It's not just Paul. It's a bunch of these guys leading their churches, writing the New Testament, considering the crucial identifying feature of themselves as Christians is that of a slave. They said, this is important. This might even be of primary importance. They identified as doulos of Christ. So if you're a Christian today, your ancestors embraced this idea. It was for them. And it's not one that gets people excited in 2022. So you could just imagine, right, if we, if we kind of tried to bring this into today. Just imagine you're at like a, like a Christian conference or a, or a Christian concert. You're like, well, that sounds kind of weird. It is, but a lot of us went to them. And uh, so just you're at one of those, right, and, but it's going to be the Apostle Paul is the keynote speaker. So we're all sitting and we've been at this thing and, and, and Paul's over in his corner and he's getting hyped up. Right, he's like, to live, to die, to Christ is gain. And then he comes out. He's like, how are we doing Seattle? And people are like, woo! It's like, who's ready to worship God? People are like, woo! Who's a child of God? People are like, woo! Who's a slave of Jesus? And it goes silent. Because that's awkward. But it was part of of the identification of being a Christian. It was central to the first Christians. It might have been their favorite identifier. You have maybe heard of the word redeemed. It's in some of our songs. It's in different verses. The word redeemed is a compound word, means to be bought back. Bought back like a slave. This language was everywhere. This is one of, one of the ways of describing salvation. You have been redeemed by Jesus. He purchased you. Now this, this is not really Ephesians 6. This is not really a passage or, or a sermon about uh, salvation. But in a different time... Christians had, I I think, a stronger appreciation for the lordship of Jesus Christ than than maybe what's seen in kind of the general church culture of our day. So let's take a collective breath, um, come back to our verses here, Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read this again. So if if you hold in your hand the depth of of the word doulos, I think it unlocks what the Bible has for us in these verses here. So bondservants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as doulos of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, 
whether he is a doulos or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. You will at some point in your life, likely most points in your life, have an earthly authority. So we can relate to that. You will have somebody who's a boss, who's in charge, who's whatever. And so what does the Bible say about how to live in that dynamic? How do you live under that relationship in a godly way? And it says, obey them with a sincere heart as you would Christ. As to Christ. As to Christ? If you are a doulos of Christ, that puts some significance on what we just read. Paul applies the same weightiness of Jesus' lordship over me to that of an earthly master. And not just once, he does it a bunch of times, right? Obey them with fear and trembling. Obey your masters as you would Christ, not like a people pleaser, but as slaves of Christ. Render service with the goodwill as to the Lord. Do this from your heart, knowing that you will receive back from the Lord. Makes this connection four times. Applies the same weightiness. If your allegiance to Jesus is temporary, then this is a lot easier. Because then this can be temporary too. Since it's not, for all the reasons that we just spent 10 minutes on, this is a bit harder. The bar for a godly worth ethic is such a high calling. Christians should be the hardest workers in their workplace. Christians should not have secret agendas. There should be no division started by Christians in their places of work. Why? Because in those moments, though you are working for an earthly authority, though you're working for your boss, also, you're not really. You're working for Christ. And I think there's both caution and encouragement in that. Here's the caution. You cannot find any true identity in your work alone. You cannot find your purpose in your work alone. It won't work. If you make it so that God is not in it, if the Lord that you are meant to be serving is excluded from your context, he will not be there with you in those moments when you remove him from the picture. We, we are not called to an existence of work apart for, from Christ. We are called to an existence to work for others even as we work for Christ. He is there with us. He is our true motivation. And so I think there's incredible encouragement in that. This is why wherever you go, no matter what you do, your work matters. If you are working for the Lord, 
and not just for others. And there may be a sense where, where God has called you into your particular place for reasons that you don't yet know. But you might be the only one who is the ambassador for Jesus Christ in that place. God may have sent you somewhere where the tasks that you do feel so foreign, unfulfilling, painful, whatever, but your attitude in that moment, your reflection of someone who is working for their master is what makes all the difference in the world for those who are watching. But God might also call you to a place where your tasks accomplish something for the kingdom. And he's asked us to work well and work hard in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. And in any job, it can feel like what you are doing is meaningless. And yet, your labor is not in vain. And so as Paul walks us through all of this, we come then to verse 9, and he addresses masters. This has been true of all three pairs. There's been, uh, this, there's been something to those who submit, and then there has been something to those who servant lead. This is the third week in a row. And so Paul says, masters, do the same to them. Don't threaten, so on and so forth. Um, for whatever reason, in, in reading this verse a couple times, reading this passage throughout the week, uh, just reminded me of my own journey, and I think that this is in here to uh, just a, a simple ad address our sinful nature and how we like to respond in kind, how we like to grasp for power, uh, and the silly little petty things we do. When I was a freshman, uh, I was very small, Sometimes words are thrown at people who are very small and they tend to be unkind. So then later, when I was a senior, I decided it was my turn. And so I was unkind to freshmen. And I didn't even notice until like the second half of the year when the freshmen kind of started to become my friends. And I was like, why am I so mean to you? But this thing happened where I had been servant, I had been, the, it was my turn to get picked on, and so then later when I had earthly authority, my natural inclination didn't need to be taught, didn't really need to think about it. Hey, punk, freshman, what are you doing? Like, it, just, it just flowed. And that was my own journey of unlearning this idea of what it means to get your turn, or what uh, authority is meant to look like. Jesus kind of deals with the same thing with some of his apostles. Uh, his disciples had this, this struggle with authority. It was very difficult for them to understand. And late in Jesus' 
life towards the end of his ministry in Matthew 20, they even just ask, right, how do I get to be important? And so Matthew 20, 25, this is a really, really, I think, useful, interesting conversation that Jesus has with a couple of his disciples. And I I think we have these uh, maybe to follow along. Uh, But Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your doulos. That's the word. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this moment, Jesus does this same thing and, and, he, and he flips the understanding of, of what it is to be important, what it is to lead, what it is to have authority. And he even, even in his life is, is helping set this up for them that what you are actually to pursue is this crazy idea of doulos, of being a slave of Jesus Christ, to be owned and ruled and led by him. And then he demonstrated that for them and he took leadership and he did something with it that no one was expecting in the way that he led. And in Matthew's gospel, this is actually uh, the second to last thing that Jesus did before walking through the gates on Palm Sunday to go lay down his life. He said that with his disciples, and then he walked through to Hosanna, knowing what was ahead of him. Um, But in all of this, Paul, Paul grounds all of this back on the main point. The master is Jesus. Right, it's such this, such this interesting warning at the end of verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that this master shows no partiality. This is either really good or this is really humbling. I think this, this is where we are meant to end up. With, we kind of throw out these ideas of, of, of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King. And this is it. Jesus is our King. Jesus is King over all of us. And Paul says there is no partiality. This, this is either an incredible encouragement or it's a really humbling reminder that we need. If you're the big boss, you've pursued the dream, you've got employees, you've got hundreds of followers, guess what? Jesus is king, not you. If you feel stuck in your job, or unnoticed, guess what? Jesus is king. 
If you've got the option, as much as you want to work is how much money you'll make. You can make obscene amount of money for just putting in time. Guess what? Jesus is king. Is that your money or his? If your earthly authority is no good to you, maybe even unfair, guess what? Jesus is king. You're working primarily for him. If, if you don't see that what you do accomplishes anything, Jesus is king. And sometimes in a great project, things take time. And sometimes we don't see what we're doing for a long time. Sometimes we may never see, and what the king has asked for is obedience. And sometimes, if your work takes you to places that are uncomfortable, and you have to do hard things, or things you're not good at, things you didn't sign up for, Jesus is king. And there is no partiality with him. Doesn't matter how much you make, doesn't how, matter how much you struggle. And what's awesome about this is this type of metaphor is the exact same thing that is applied to the way that Jesus gives out his grace. There is no partiality with him. It does not matter if you rolled in here this morning on top of the world. Everyone listens to you. Everyone does what you say. You need Jesus' grace as the king. It does not matter if you came in here this morning and nothing works. It doesn't matter because you need his grace from Jesus the King. Would you pray with me? God, we ask um, that you would, you would give us the depth of the understanding of, of how high and how deep and how unsearchable are your thoughts. For who has ever given to the Lord that he should repay them? Or who has ever given something to the Lord that he should owe them? God, you owe us nothing. We owe you everything. And that is so radical. That is so difficult. But this morning, as you walk in through the gates of Jerusalem to be the king that we did not deserve, God, help us to embrace that. Help us to embrace you. Let us respond with praise and obedience to your true authority. In your holy name we pray. Amen.